you set that tube down for now. We'll use it in a minute. Go ahead and pull that swab out. It's gonna peel open on one end. Cars inch their way from tent to tent in a large converted parking lot. Nurses and volunteers fill out paperwork, collect swab samples, and hand out free masks and hand sanitizer. All right, on your paper, make sure that's your name and date of birth on there. This is one of several right, free COVID testing sites across the city of Waco, Texas, in McLennan County. So it's gonna go, we're gonna swab both nostrils, we're gonna go in, all of that cotton swab about one inch. As patients three pull up to get tested, the heavily masked side. volunteers, many of whom appear to be in their 20s, younger than me anyway, they collect vouchers and teach patients how to perform and seal the tests. So on the back side of the back right here, there's a little pocket, here, a little pouch, right? And put that side there with the knee facing outwards. Waco's positivity rate and case counts reached a peak in July. These testing sites were created, though, in late September because of the high percentage of COVID-19 patients in area hospitals. This is the first time since the pandemic began that free testing has been widely available throughout Waco, home to 140,000 Texans. You see that number, man? 19776080. Waco has joined a number of small communities across Texas in reporting a higher percentage of COVID-related hospitalizations in the last few weeks. The Waco McLennan County Public Health District has reported more than 9,200 cases since March. Now, while these numbers might seem low relative to larger metropolitan areas, 48 of the 54 available ICU beds in the entire county are being used right now. There's not room for many more patients. More than 15% of Waco's hospitalizations were related to COVID for more than eight consecutive days in late September. So what are we seeing? Well, we're seeing the beginnings of what looks like it might be a third COVID surge across Texas and the country. But this one is different and potentially more deadly than the two that came before. Because instead of a regional surge like we saw earlier in the year on the coasts or in the south, infernos centered in America's cities, this one is fueled by little fires everywhere. And they're growing hotter every day. Welcome to Petri Dish. I'm Bonnie Petrie, and today, the pandemic pushes into America's small cities and towns. A few weeks ago, NPR data editor Sean McMinn reached out to us at Petri Dish. Sean crunches numbers all day, looking for emerging trends. So one thing that's been really interesting to me since the beginning of this pandemic is the way that it's affecting people outside of the major cities. So he's been trying to track these areas. But the thing is, this is hard to track consistently because these places aren't showing up on the you know, quote unquote, worst list of uh, places in the country just because the population is lower. Um, so they're not always getting the coverage that, you know, they necessarily merit. Uh, one way to find these places is to look at the number of cases uh, or deaths per capita. So you start to adjust for population. Um, 
And of course, doing that in Texas, you start to see some places pop up um, that are outside of, you know, Houston or, or Dallas or whatever. But this wasn't giving McMinn quite the picture he was looking for. He needed different ways to measure the impact of COVID in smaller communities that won't have an eye-catching number of cases because, well, they just don't have that many people living there. In some towns, 100 cases might overwhelm the local health care system. In some places, it might just be 10. So something I started looking at um, that's kind of a variation on this per capita idea is looking at the number of cases per hospital bed. Um, and so this is going to get us to, to find places that maybe aren't, you know, really tiny um, cities or, or don't have a huge number of cases, but they have a high number of cases relative to what their hospitals or what the healthcare can handle, the healthcare capacity can handle. And a picture started emerging, and it was an unsettling one. Several cities in Texas were struggling with a relatively small number of cases, you know, compared to New York City or San Francisco or Houston or even San Antonio, where I am. But but for those communities, it was a lot. Again, this is getting back to the idea of let's look at this, not just as a raw number of population and the raw number of cases, but these rates um, and you know, it, what could be a relatively small, um, you know, problem in one of the bigger cities can quickly become something that affects everyone or almost everyone in one of these smaller towns. So he called us because he saw several smaller cities in Texas were experiencing high numbers of COVID cases compared to the number of staffed hospital beds they had available to treat COVID patients. Cities like Corpus Christi and Harlingen, McAllen, and Waco had some of the highest numbers of COVID cases to hospital bed ratios in the country. Well, that piqued our interest in cities and towns outside of the major metropolitan areas in Texas. So we followed up with a few. What we found is being reflected in small cities and towns across the country right now. Let's start with one to which McMinn brought our attention. We started out there, Waco. For most places in the country, you're looking at like roughly one case per hospital bed or, or fewer. Um, in Waco right now, that number is about two and a half. Um, so for every one hospital bed in their hospital referral region is the technical term for it, um, you're seeing roughly two and a half COVID cases pop up. So remember that number at the start of the show? 48 out of 54 ICU beds in Waco are taken. It's clear there isn't much room there for a spike in COVID patients. Waco Public Radio Sam Cedar has been covering the pandemic there since it started back in March. A lot of hospitals don't have that much wiggle room to begin with. I spoke with Stephanie Alvey, who's the Public Health Emergency Preparedness Coordinator for the Waco McLennan County Public Health District, and she said that the pandemic has only added more weight to an already strained healthcare system. A lot of people don't realize that hospitals already run at a pretty high capacity. So adding on one more thing that's going to uh, increase that could, you know, could spell trouble. Stephanie said that while hospitals here aren't close to capacity in terms of resources like beds, ventilators, or PPE, the pandemic has left them short-staffed, as a lot of nurses and doctors have been forced to quarantine themselves. They are still seeing anywhere between 40 and 50 COVID patients at a time between our two facilities. Um, I wouldn't say that they've been overwhelmed, but they have had some 
concerns with staffing especially. Um, you know, they may have enough hospital beds, but the people to staff those beds, um, you know, that's that's been something that we've been monitoring and and have had concerns about up to this point. She also mentioned that, you know, testing obviously isn't going to get anyone out of the hospital, but the increase in testing will help in getting community members, especially asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic carriers, to take safety precautions like masking up and self-quarantining more seriously. Yeah, so testing is so important just because um, it, it, it's, the, it's one of the biggest drivers for impacting behavior, right? So if you have a cough or a sniffle or a sore throat and, you know, you're used to having that, um, you're going to go about and do your normal daily, you know, business. But if you have access to the test and you're curious and you think, well, what if this could be? Because I know we've all thought that um, at this point. You have ac easy access to the test now. You can go get tested, and if you have that positive result, that's going to impact your behavior more than likely, and you're going to you're going to stay home. You're going to avoid contact with others, and that will you know ultimately stop the spread. So um, that's really I think how it's going to be so beneficial for us. So Sam, I'm curious: has hospital capacity always been one of the primary concerns in McLennan County? Um, when did this move to the forefront of conversation among Waco officials? Well, that's a good question, and it's something that I talked about with Stephanie. Waco's really benefited from two things since the start of the pandemic. The presence of these large hospital systems that can funnel resources down from their corporate offices and time. Here's Mayor Kyle Deaver in a press conference. Because of the risk of spread of the virus and the need to protect the most vulnerable members of our community, and to ensure the maximum number of people self-isolate in their homes in order to flatten the curve of the virus transmission. Today, I am modifying the declaration of disaster and public health emergency I declared on March 17th. As of 11.59 p.m. tonight, all Waco residents should shelter at their homes. At all times, everyone is ordered to, ordered to exercise social distancing of at least six feet from one another, except for members of your own household. Waco was one of the first cities in Texas to issue a stay-at-home order back in March, and it was able to keep case counts relatively low in the following months. Prior to June, it was rare that McLennan County reported more than five cases in a day. Stephanie said this gave the hospital systems time to gather resources, create additional hospital capacity, and design protocols for the eventual spike in cases that would occur in July. Um, you know, we saw our spike in cases in July, and so... By the end of July, um, our hospitals were seeing that impact. Um, and they've worked really, really hard. And so I would say that um, early on when we issued that stay-at-home order and we, we did see such a low case count, it gave our hospitals a lot of time to build in capacity um, and make plans. Uh, and so that is part of the reason that we haven't seen them be overwhelmed because they really did have a little bit of extra time to prepare for it. You know, they designated certain areas of the hospitals. They figured out where they could expand bed capacity um, and it, beyond just their normal licensed beds um, and how they would cohort, you know, um, patients, especially COVID patients, so that they could effectively staff um, and monitor those patients and isolate them from the rest of the patient population, things like that. Baylor University accounts for a fairly sizable portion of the Waco population, and they came back this fall. So has that influx of students contributed at all to the current issues in the hospital system? Baylor Nation, we 
show some spirit. Learn the faith and show your faith and Well, Baylor is back. Football, Greek life, and all. But Baylor's actually been one of the more stringent universities in the country when it comes to COVID-19 precautions. Just outside of Moody Memorial Library, a quad that used to be open and ideal for studying frisbee and dog watching, has become a semi-dystopian scene of large white tents. Baylor performs regular and mandatory surveillance testing on its faculty and students each week offers free rapid testing to all its students, and even became one of the only schools in the country to require a negative COVID test to return to campus in the fall. The key success in Baylor and the universities that we have seen is they spent the summer planning. They brought, while everybody else was going on vacation, and I'm sure it was very unpopular at the time, they brought in the, the faculty and the staff to really plan through all of these issues so they would be ready in August. That was Dr. Deborah Burks of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, who actually helped in bringing all those free testing facilities to Waco. She visited Baylor in late September and said that some of the methods instituted at Baylor will help other universities prepare for the return of students in the spring. Each university provides another unique nugget of understanding that we'll be able to put together so that there'll be a roadmap to success for all universities in the spring. What I think Baylor ha will provide to the nation, which I think is critically important, is what to look for, how to find it, and how to care for those students and community. One of the innovations made by Baylor came from their testing of wastewater for the virus. It helped them to identify outbreaks in a few of the dorms on campus and perform broad surveillance testing in those residence halls to limit the spread of the outbreak. And for the most part, they were successful. Seven months ago, we didn't think of doing any of these things. So this cutting edge, what we call innovative science and data collection, will help other universities really understand when they tr will open in the spring. Okay, so Sam, we've talked about the hospital system and the university, both of which, you know, seem to be handling the virus relatively well, if you can say that. So what issues are still a real concern for the community? Well, I spoke with Larry Halsey about what the city is focusing on right now. He's the Director of Municipal Information and Communication for the City of Waco. And he says that a big part of the city's challenge currently is attempting to address the disproportionate number of COVID-19 cases and deaths in the Latino community. We've uh, been doing radio advertising on uh, Hispanic radio stations. Uh, we've been boosting our, our uh, television spots on Telemundo and some of the other TV stations that are catering to the Hispanic population. So uh, we've engaged the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. How do they communicate to their membership, to their people? Uh, so we're very aware of that. And so just about everything we do, uh, we, we do in Spanish. Larry mentioned the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, which serves not only as an economic service to Latino-owned businesses in the city, but also as a bridge between the Latino population and the city government. Right now, the chamber building is serving as one of the free COVID-19 testing facilities in town. Alfred Solano, who serves as the president of the chamber, said that when the city got more access to testing, he immediately volunteered the chamber as a testing location and a vehicle for outreach to the community. We were informed that there were 40,000 tests, and we're watching the trends and saying, okay, so we have a disproportionate amount of Hispanics who are uh, getting the virus and becoming ill and getting sick and dying. We need trusted sites for the Hispanic community to go and do it.
Thanks, Sam, for your great reporting. Thank you, Bonnie. Okay, about five and a half hours north and west of Waco, you find another Texas city starting to understand what COVID can really do. Known for harsh weather, including dust storms, being the home of Texas Tech University and the birthplace of Buddy Holly, we're talking about Lubbock. Good morning. How can we help you? Hi, I'm here to visit a patient. Okay. Any signs, symptoms, or exposure to COVID? No. Okay. Go step to the desk. Nicole will be glad to help you. Hospitals in Lubbock are seeing their highest rates of COVID-19 patients since the start of the pandemic. The number of people suffering complications of the disease nearly doubled in the first two weeks of October. Doubled. Last week, Governor Greg Abbott sent additional surge support, like extra health care workers, to the South Plains City as hospitals neared capacity. Texas Tech Public Media's Sarah Self-Walbrick has been reporting on how coronavirus is affecting Lubbock. When I talk with hospital administrators, you can hear the frustration in their voices. Chief Medical Officer at Covenant Health System, Dr. Craig Ryan, shared a story that illustrates what's happening in Lubbock. When I was uh, much, much younger, I took my young sons from daycare and took them to the park one afternoon. And at five o'clock, I looked at my watch and said, boys, we got to go home. Mommy's going to be home. She's going to wonder where we are. My three-year-old put his hands on his hips and said, Daddy, let's don't go home yet. Mommy's sick and tired. And I, I tell that story because we are sick and tired. Everybody in this community is sick and tired of COVID-19. We're tired of dealing with it. But Ron is right. Now is not the time for us to give up and stop doing the things that we've been doing. At University Medical Center, the other major hospital in town, Dr. Mike Reagan says they have recently reached a few grim milestones. There are five different things that happened that peaked out this week. The number of cases, we had a record number uh, in our hospital. We had a record number of COVID admissions. We also had a record number of COVID patients in the ICU. We hit a record number of employees that were out because of COVID. Uh, Dr. Ryan said that uh, we're having providers, physicians, uh, advanced practice professionals come down with the virus. That's true across the medical community. And so we're very challenged in terms of the, the volumes of patients. And we're worried about how that goes. Lubbock hospitals serve a very large area with patients coming from as far away as eastern New Mexico and even Colorado. This summer, when the Rio Grande Valley experienced a debilitating COVID-19 outbreak, some patients were sent more than 500 miles north to Lubbock for care. Now the hospital, though, is diverting many of those in need elsewhere. A lot of folks are blaming Lubbock's spike in hospitalizations on returning college students. And it's true that the city's spike in hospitalizations comes a little over a month after a sharp rise of COVID cases in the college-aged crowd. Many of those cases were attributed to house parties, like one where a woman believed to be a Texas Tech University student said she had COVID. Everyone's like, But the transmission rate at Texas Tech University seems to be slowing down. 
Now, Self Walbrecht tells us the city is seeing uncontrolled community spread. Officials are attributing this to COVID fatigue, people not following the suggested rules. You see it all around Lubbock. When I go to the grocery store, most folks have a mask on, but not all are wearing it right. Many have their noses popping out. City of Lubbock Health Director Catherine Wells says that's a problem, but smaller gatherings are what she's most concerned about. Through our contact tracing, we are really seeing spread when individuals are letting their guard down. We are not seeing spread in workplaces or schools where everybody's wearing masks and we're practicing social distancing. The places that we're seeing spread are at birthday parties, dinner parties, large celebrations such as weddings, um, clubs and dance halls, crowded restaurants, caretakers not wearing their masks. And Mayor Dan Pope gave a recent example. I'm going to tell you a, a, a story that's happened in the last week in our community. You know, we, uh, we love to celebrate those big birthdays. And when you're my age, you know, that might be uh, your friends might be turning the big 5-0 or the big 6-0. And, and uh, those are important times. And we had a situation happen in our community where at least nine people went to a, one of those Im- important birthday parties and they all came out infected. Think about the impact that that has on nine families and on maybe nine churches or nine workplaces. That's how this spreads. I've personally declined two wedding invites in the past month. I feel horribly for these couples, but now is not the time for a get-together like that. City and health leaders this week pleaded with citizens to return to tighter precautions, things that we know work. Here's Lubbock Health Authority Dr. Ron Cook. I know that individuals don't want to be cooped up anymore, and we have COVID fatigue, and we want to go to parties, and we want to have birthday parties, and we want to be in the park when it's warm. Those things can happen, but we must continue to wear our facial covering, maintain our social distance from each other, and wash our hands and get our flu shots. We know that those physical barriers work. So I'm just going to put a pin in Dr. Cook's thoughts right there. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But right now, let's head from the South Plains to the Texas Hill Country, to Kerr County, population around 50,000, and its county seat, Kerrville, a tranquil weekend getaway for those with a little disposable income. There are wineries and art galleries and festivals. But now... Temperature scan, nothing's changed from yesterday. Okay, 96. Like everywhere else... On the right or left arm today? There's also COVID. Sting. About a thousand people work at Peterson Regional Medical Center in Kerrville, and they're all going to get their flu vaccines over the next few weeks. You're finished. Nothing to it. Unsurprisingly, these hospital workers embrace these basic public health tools. I like masks. I like hand hygiene. I like social distancing. (laughs) And I like flu vaccinations. Pam Burton is the infection preventionist at Peterson Health, and she also serves as an expert whenever the hospital gets media requests. Hello, this is Pam Burton, infection preventionist for Peterson Health with your COVID-19 update. 
She and other nurses record audio updates each day for the community. But as of October the 5th, testing will only be offered on Mondays, Wednesdays. These messages throughout the pandemic have never been too grim. This area avoided the worst of COVID in Texas over the summer. But now, cases are rising. So, what do you do when you start to see growth? You start pandemic precautions as a community, right? But in Kerr County, a slice of the local population has pushed back hard against basic safety protocols. There is a lot of misinformation floating around all over. The internet is a big source of it. From my research that I've done and numerous doctors, um, it's the main problem is glutathione deficiency. That's someone who opposes mask use. Speaking about masks at a Kerr County Commissioner's meeting in late June, just when cases were surging throughout the rest of the state of Texas. There's natural remedies that are available, and I have these from infectious disease experts who are... Okay, that's nonsense, of course. Masks are safe and effective. No big guaranteed treatments, uh, remedies, natural or otherwise, for covid Currently exist. Um, just that wearing masks put, puts even, especially the elderly, at risk by by um, not having a, the proper amount of oxygen. Again, that that right there, it's absolutely, demonstrably, not true. But this misinformation is nearly as virulent as the COVID virus. Experts call it an infodemic. But, interestingly enough, this isn't the primary reason some people in Kerr County oppose masks. Kerrville was, in Kerr County and the Hill Country in general, was founded on conservative principles. And that being that a person looked after themselves and their family and their neighbors. And that is encompassing within that, it maybe comes down to just American common sense. Okay. We must ensure that we maintain our fundamental right to make these decisions for ourselves with limited government intervention. At the end of the meeting, Kerr County Judge Rob Kelly announced an interesting compromise of sorts. And that is that we, uh, I make a motion that we encourage everyone, businesses and individuals, uh, to wear masks in public for themselves and for others if they believe that. And if they don't believe that, they don't, then, you know, do what you believe. Everybody exercises their own rights. So what's the motion specific? Uh, for this court to make recommendations to the public to wear masks if you believe that is in your best interest. I'll second that. Is there any other discussion? Those in favor, raise your hand. Unanimous. A unanimous decision to keep things pretty much the same. So we caught up with Tom Moser by phone. Okay, Tom Moser, County Commissioner in Kerr County for Precinct 2. So Moser moved to the area in 1994, and he really, really loves it there. So now, 26 years later, I still think it's the best place in the world to live. And he knows the community pretty well. He sums up what he sees as the local thinking on the pandemic and pandemic precautions in a couple of quick sentences. Every, every aspect of life has got risk to it unless you just don't do anything. So anytime you're, you are trying to have the freedoms associated with liberty, there's always risk. 
okay, so, but what about ways to moderate the risk? Methods like mask use that allow more of us to do more things with less risk. This is where Moser believes individual choice and personal liberty come into the mix. Moser points to the governors of California and New York. He thinks they don't respect choice and liberty. They think they know best what's good for the public. And uh, I don't agree with that at all. And I think that, uh, you know, that that's, and I think that this coronavirus thing is a, is a thing that's enabling people to have more control because that's their, that's their philosophy. They want to control. Okay. They want to control. And, um, and that's, that's not it. I mean, go all the way back to the constitution. It's, it's the will of the people. Okay. And, and as we, we gradually add controls and controls and controls, it's hard to get rid of a control. It's hard to get rid of a regulation. So you might have heard this type of thinking before. Not a few people in the United States share this way of thinking that mandating pandemic safety measures means ceding control over your own life and choices. And once ceded, you won't be able to get them back. But not everyone in Kerrville shares this take. Well, there are many instances where our personal liberties have been impugned because of greater good. William Rector grew up in Kerbal and practiced medicine there for about three decades. Wearing a seatbelt is one. Driving the speed limit is one. Placing a child in a child carrier in a vehicle. Those are all things that are against our personal liberties, but we do them because we realize that they save lives. He spoke at that Kerr County Commissioner's meeting in favor of masks. So it was disappointing. Um, but I think that looking in retrospect, it was not the decision that we needed for this community because after that meeting, the number of cases of COVID in Kerrville began to rise and rise rather rapidly. Rapidly, yes. They were rising exponentially across Texas. And then on Thursday, July 2nd, just a few days after that Kerr County Commissioner's meeting. Texans are resilient. We are tough and we are determined. We can accomplish- Governor Greg Abbott puts out a YouTube video. A mask with the Texas flag rests on his desk. He presents a graph with alarming trend lines, COVID surging in Texas. In short, we must do more to slow the spread without locking Texas back down. Abbott implements a statewide mask order with only a few counties exempted. Kerr County is included. And once people started wearing masks and you went into HEB and everybody shopping had a mask on, our numbers began to uh, drop down significantly. It took a while. The trend lines didn't really flatten out until August. As the curve got flatter, the Kerr County judge took another look at the mask mandate. Kerr County eventually met the maximum case threshold to be exempted from the mandate. Our county judge decided that, hey, things are so cool, we can take away the masks. And when that happened, our numbers started going back up again. So the county took a closer look at the data 
and then backpedaled on the mask issue, requesting the state put the county back on the mask mandate list. So masks are required again, although local law enforcement is not enforcing the mandate and bars in Kerr County are open again as the governor recently relaxed that closure. And new reported cases over September are significantly higher than August. So we reached out to Kerr County Judge Rob Kelly for an interview, but he didn't get back to us. The city of Kerrville also didn't reply. Okay, so NPR data editor Sean McBinn alerted us to little hotspots all over the state, but his expertise can only identify trends, what has happened and what is happening. To get an idea of what might happen, you have to go to a different kind of expert. And we know just the one. My name is Juan Gutierrez. I am the chair of mathematics at the University of Texas at San Antonio. I conduct research in infectious diseases, particularly mathematical modeling of multi-scale phenomena related to infectious diseases. And all year long, he's been creating mathematical models for COVID spread. And he says what McMinn saw in Texas, he's seeing in smaller cities and more rural areas across the country. Around the country, COVID-19 is taking off. He's also seeing something else. As a frame of reference, uh, there are about 2,100 counties in the U.S. with a population less than 50,000 people. 90% of those counties voted for President Trump in the 2016 election. Okay. And? There is a, a statistically significant correlation between the increasing cases in the U.S. and the political inclination as measured by the 2016 election. And when I say statistically significant is there is a true phenomenon by which counties that uh, made that political choice four years ago are many times more likely to have outbreaks that have increased over 200% in the last month. 200% in the last month. Now, because these are small communities, the numbers in isolation don't look bad. But when we look at the aggregation of more than 2,000 counties, this is driving the growth of uh, the disease in, in many states in this moment. And because these are smaller communities... Then the numbers mask the reality that the disease is growing fast. And the worst part is that those rural, rural communities have the potential to uh, receive an impact that is very significant because those are precisely the communities that tend to have the weakest health infrastructure. Now, let's be clear. While we all know correlation does not necessarily mean causation, Gutierrez finds this correlation compelling. But he doesn't think it's about whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or a progressive or a conservative, or even how you feel about things like personal choice and liberty. Gutierrez thinks this is about misinformation and disinformation, the infodemic of just bad, inaccurate information we talked about earlier. Telling people that COVID is unimportant, that COVID is not significant, that the gravity of the disease has been exaggerated by 
press, etc., etc. This has been bombarded into communities that have the political inclination uh, that follows uh, what happened in 2016. It's in those places where the disease is exploding. So even if you're a person who doesn't think masks should be mandated, you might still wear one, even without a mandate, because you believe that COVID was serious. And you believe the science that's found that masks significantly reduce the spread of the virus. But if leaders and media sources you listen to and that you trust are telling you something else. If those communities are receiving the message, COVID-19 is not significant, is not grave, is not a cause of concern. Well, COVID-19 will take a hold of those communities and you will see an increase of cases. So... Does Gutierrez's finding pan out for the communities we visited in this episode? Well, let's have a look. Okay, so we started the show in Waco. In 2016, in McLennan County, 61.7% of voters cast their ballots for President Trump. So what does Gutierrez's model show? We're seeing growth, sustained growth. So he shared his screen on our Zoom call and showed me his graph from McLennan County. And actually, if you take in many of these cases a look at the concavity of the curve, the concavity of the curve is not, is not concave down, which would mean the thing is stabilizing. It's concave up, which means it's growing. So they're not going to see a decrease in cases. It's going, to, it's accelerating. Okay, so how about Lubbock? In 2016, 66.9% of the voters in Lubbock County wrote for President Trump. Uh, Lubbock is increasing very fast. Uh, Texas Tech University has reported in this moment an accumulated number, probably 2,000, around 2,000 cases, uh, which would be a very substantial percentage of their community. And Kerr County? 76.5% of Kerr County's voters cast their ballots for President Trump in 2016. Dr. Gutierrez shows me his graph for Kerr County, and he explains that each model he's shown me has a range of numbers that make up what's called the confidence interval. It's sort of like that cone of uncertainty we see in hurricane forecasts. You know, there's a line in the middle and then there's a shaded area on either side. Like I said, cone of uncertainty. Well, the hurricane could end up anywhere in there. And the better the data you put in, the narrower the cone is. The confidence interval is the same. If you have better data, you have a narrower shaded area. Kerr County has some data problems, he says. So the confidence interval is wide. Now we're looking at a, at a band that goes from 800 to 6,000 cases. So it's gonna be in between those two values. Of course, but that's valuable. It's not going to be 50,000, not 300. It's going to be more than the 1,000 that they have, uh, or 750 that they have in this moment. How much more? That depends almost entirely on the choices of the people who live there. If people don't take this virus seriously. The trend in this moment is telling us that we could see in the state of Texas an increase of 50% in the coming weeks with respect to what we have in this moment. In the nation, it's something comparable. But if we extend the time window uh, through winter, we have the risk of ending up with many more cases, many times more cases what we had so far, and a proportional number of deaths, people who don't 
need to die. Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, indoor gatherings with people you enjoy and maybe haven't seen in a long time, talking and laughing, maybe shouting what family doesn't have at least one argument during the holidays. You know, these things cause droplets to spread further. And close contact, like hugging. This is the moment to put in place our best discipline, our best interventions, a consistent message from government and media telling people that we can put a break on this disease, we can decrease the number of deaths, just following very basic public health guidelines. We don't need to close the economy. We have to take care of our people. We just have to be careful as a society. And if we're not careful as a society? Yes, we are. We are heading to a place that is very difficult and will be tragic for a large number of people. On the sprawling property where the Wisconsin State Fair hosted more than a million people in 2019, many delightedly stuffing their faces with Wisconsin cream puffs like I did when I was at the Wisconsin State Fair a couple of years ago, they've opened an Army field hospital. The Army Corps of Engineers built the 530-bed field hospital in April, but the COVID wave that crashed over New York City back then Well, it didn't wash over the rest of the country as many feared it would. The Wisconsin Fairgrounds Field Hospital remained empty, so it closed. Wisconsin and many other states across the country, they believed maybe they were out of the woods and that COVID wouldn't come for them. Not really. But as the state opened its field hospital to offer overflow care to patients from across the state last week, Only 16% of the state's hospital beds were available for patients. That's why they need the field hospital. Healthcare facilities from Milwaukee to Green Bay are filling up with patients with alarming speed. The threat now of an overwhelmed healthcare system is very real. COVID has come for them. And it's not just Wisconsin. According to the COVID tracking project, over the last week, Wisconsin is one of nine Midwest states and six states in the West to report the highest number of new COVID cases in a single day that they've ever had. We're eight months into this, and this virus is still finding ways to devastate us with new records. You know, it's numbers like these that have people starting to worry that we've started a third COVID surge in the United States. But this one, it doesn't look like the surge that stunned New York City in March and April, or even the one that knocked the wind out of Texas and the rest of the South in July and August. No, this time, there are little outbreaks all over the country suggesting the possibility of a surge that could sweep the nation before winter even starts. Case counts are up in the Northeast. They're up in the South. They're up in the Midwest and the Mountain West. And yes, they're up in rural areas across the country. Dr. Gutierrez told me that more than half of the 100 counties with the worst outbreaks over the last seven days per capita are home to fewer than 10,000 people. Almost all of them have populations under 50,000, so counties about the size of Kerr County in Texas. 
so people who've been largely untouched by this virus, so they maybe decided it's not that big a deal, are starting to see dark hints of this virus's power and its cruelty. This, right now, is not the time for any of us to let down our guard. This is not the time to start opening everything up without precautions, taking off our masks and getting up close and personal with people, no matter how tired we are of all this, and we're tired of all this. This, right now, is the time to double down to protect each other and ourselves as we head into the winter and beyond. So if you don't believe in mask mandates, okay, that's fine. Please, please consider this. Consider wearing a mask by choice. Consider choosing to protect your family and friends and your community and your country with a bit of fabric. And keep your distance. Avoid large indoor gatherings. Wash your hands frequently. All the stuff we put a pin in earlier in the show from Lubbock County Health Authority, Dr. Ron Cook. Do those things. We have learned so much about this virus since the U.S. recorded its first COVID death in February. And what we've learned can help us now. We don't have to have a third surge. Now we know what slows the spread. We know what works. So let's do it, okay? Okay. This episode of Petri Dish was produced by Dominic Anthony Walsh and me. Special thanks this week to NPR's data editor, Sean McMinn, Waco Public Radio reporter Sam Cedar, and Texas Tech Public Media reporter Sarah Self-Walbrick. Our sound engineer, Jacob Rosati. Our executive producer is Fernanda Camarena. Texas Public Radio's news director is Dan Katz. Mark Mehmet is the managing editor of the Texas Newsroom. This podcast is a production of TPR and the Texas Newsroom, a collaboration between public radio stations across Texas and NPR. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Talk to you soon.